We will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes, as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the son. This is all I... All I can send you. Come on. Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Superman Retrospective Series. Hi. Superman? That's me. From 1978 Superman, all the way through 2016's Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Garrett. How can one man be so square and so delicious? Matt. And Adam. You diseased maniac. We'll look at all the Kryptonian Sun's cinematic adventures. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. Was Richard Donner's vision of Superman deserving of its iconic reputation? Easy, miss. I've got you. You you've got me! Who's got you? Superman returns as bad as it's reputed to be. Hey, you know something? You're a real pain in the neck. What about 1984's Supergirl? Well, we really better talk. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. This order's to go. Superman 3, released June 17, 1983, budget on this was $39 million, box office $80.2 million, and this was directed by Richard Lester. Alright boys, we've arrived. I think we've finally gotten to the point, and see if you guys agree with this. This is what the Salkines wanted to make the entire time. If Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz hadn't got a hold of that first Superman script, and Donner said... Tom, please change this. This is what we would have gotten. I'm going to go one step further. Not more so with the first movie. I think this is the movie that Superman 2 would have been if 100% of it was done by Richard Lester. Looking at both cuts, both of which we we discussed last week, I think the, the general consensus is that the best stuff was shot by Donner. Not to say that Lester's stuff was terrible, 
but he sort of had to play in the sandbox, but he could add his own toys here or there. This one, they gave him the keys to the castle, and learning about the development history of this one in particular, which I knew next to nothing about, largely because I've only seen this movie one time prior to recording, there was a lot more to this, not so much with turmoil and infighting and people being fired left and right, just more of the... I guess what this movie was initially conceived as before the big Richard Pryor component and how it tweaked. So there's a lot of stuff that it's just amazing how DC, more so than Marvel through their history, the winds of change blow harder than the weather patterns that the satellite makes in the movie. (laughs) I have a very specific memory of this one, and it involves Adam. It involves you, sir. I remember... When I was laid out and drugged out after I had surgery at 17 years old, and yep. then you came over, and what, what what did we watch? We watched this movie. <laughs> <laughs> of course we yes. did. Yes, and you know what? And this was one that, as a kid, I wouldn't watch the first one over and over. I wouldn't watch the second one over and over. This is the one I would turn on. I had watched this so much as a child. Adam, how did you see this for the first time? It had to be at home on... VHS or TV viewings. But yeah, this is the one, at least growing up, I gotta say, I have at least then by far the most watches and rewatches and, and memories from. I don't know what it is about this. Maybe this is the one that played on TV also the most. In fact, it probably was through the mid to late 80s. All right. So let's. Can I just say for the record that if I was in that hospital bed as you were on all that medication, having to watch this coming out of surgery. It would have looked like the ending of Million Dollar Baby where it would have just chewed my own tongue off to end the punch. <laughs> okay, let's get the elephant out of the room right away, okay? Richard Pryor. We have one person, one person to blame for the hiring of this gentleman for this movie. Or endorse, if you want to go that far. I may go that far by the end of this podcast. Johnny Carson. Because these guys had a script for this movie, which Matt alluded to, and I'm pretty sure this is what you're talking about, where they had a plot revolving around Brainiac, Supergirl, and Mr. McSixaplick. And by the way, Mr. McSixaplick would be played by Dudley Moore. Okay. I could, based on how this one goes, I can mm-hmm. see that. And they were going to go through with that. And it would involve Supergirl having a crush on Superman. We'll get to that when we talk about Supergirl in a couple months. And then producers saw Richard Pryor on The Tonight Show. They saw that and were like, you know what? We need to get him for this. They gave Richard Pryor $5 million for this. More than Marlon Brando, which is crazy to me. All those things that you just said are true. But Richard Pryor, you have to remember, he was also, I think, the first comedian to be paid a million dollars for any kind of production. And I think that was around 19... It was before this. Uh, I'm not going to say this was the peak of Richard Pryor, because that would be silly, but he was the first black actor also to earn a million dollars when he made, not Silver Streak, the the, the one he he did, oh, Stir Crazy, one of the Gene Wilder movies he did. So he was also, around this time, going through some stuff. Mm -hmm. This was prior to, prior prior to this, no pun intended, he had poured booze over himself and set himself on fire, he had done the Live in the Sunset strip special, 
So he was still in vogue. This was not one of those things where you cast someone who's a comedian a decade past their prime and just hope that name recognition will sell tickets. But the Mr. Mixus Tidlick thing is something I wanted to talk about because I think Dudley Moore is perfect casting if you know anything about that character whatsoever. My question was, when it comes to Brainiac, who would they have gotten? And it's never been really talked about because there's the third component also, where if you've read that pitch, they get transported back in time for, like, the clients. It's like him, Superman, Lois, Jimmy Olsen, they all go to, like, the Middle Ages at one point. I'm glad they didn't make that movie when you, when you read more of the development about it, but I kind of wish... Look, and th- this, will, this is something I hate in superhero movies, where we create villains exclusive to the movie. Because Superman has a great collection of villains. And I'm so pissed off at these movies that they have two things they go back to. Evil Kryptonians, or Lex Luthor, slash Lex Luthor, without the name Lex Luthor. Because this movie, to me, to paraphrase a similar situation we had talked about with Bond, this feels like a Kevin McClory situation, where they couldn't use Blofeld, but they created villains who are ostensibly Blofeld. This movie is Lex Luthor, without Lex Luthor. And... It was not done for any legal reason, so I'm baffled as to how. I think this is largely due to Gene Hackman telling them that I am not going to be involved after how you treated Richard Donner, so you are going to do this without me, basically. Either that, so, or let's not forget, this is the Salkines, Matt. Money. They probably didn't want to pay him. They got, and we'll, we'll get into it when we get into the movie, but they got Lex Luthor Light because they paid Robert Vaughn, I don't know how much, but it couldn't have been a Gene Hackman salary to do this. No. And he's, he's very far down the list. Look at the production order. And with paying Richard Pryor all that money, you probably would not have had the budget to afford Gene Hackman as well, considering Christopher Reeve probably got a, a substantial bump without Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman being involved. And still, while he's top billed, calling this a Superman movie, I don't feel like his name should be in the title necessarily. He's, yeah, he's top billed and he cameos in his own fucking movie. Let's talk about Christopher Reeve a bit. You know, the Superman 1 and 2 come out and they're both massive successes despite the behind-the-scenes turmoil. Those both came out and they did wonders. They made a lot of money for the studio and they were critically praised. But Christopher Reeve read this script and he said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he kind of pulled a Hogan where he like stroked his Fu Manchu. He's like... That don't work for me, brother. Well, let, let, yeah, if, if Hulk Hogan was playing Superman and he was in a movie where Richard Pryor, he'd probably be saying some different things. So, so Sal Kynes came to the conclusion, we're not going to get Christopher Reeve back because Christopher Reeve said no. And they went through the casting process yet again where they looked at a whole bunch of different individuals to play this role. Do you guys know who they landed on? Who they almost got in the suit to play this? I have no idea. Adam, are you aware of this? I read through it, yep. Good. <laughs> well, if you're in the 80s, you would think that he was uh, he was your boss. Oh, no. <laughs> they landed on Tony Danza to be super... <laughs> they had him cast. And then Pierre Spangler was like, you know what? I want to make another pitch to Christopher Reeve. He's like, Chris, please, please, please come back. Please come back. Chris was like, all right, I'll come back if I can make changes to the script. And that's what they did. They brought him in to do rewrites. He did... He, I shouldn't say rewrites. He did some changes and... He came back and doing the suit. But could you guys imagine? We'll talk about the quality of this movie, but could oh, you imagine the quality geez. if we had Tony Danza? It would be Batman 66 all over again. Yeah, and that, that's the biggest thing I thought of watching this for the first time in over a decade, is that you would think that the fact that this was made in 1983, it feels like something that would have come out 
to replicate the success of Batman 66, mm-hmm. the Adam West show, because it's, I mean, look, we'll talk about the opening very soon, but that might as well be straight from the Adam West series oh. and everything from the, God, there's just, there's just so much that's in common with Adam West, but it goes to show tone is one thing, but execution is an entirely different component of these movies. Well, you listen to the commentary with the producers, which I did for this podcast. They say they're very happy with the gross of it. But this opened three weeks after Return of the Jedi, ten days after Octopussy. It's a hell of a yeah. month. Jedi, Superman 3, and a Bond mm-hmm. movie. Damn. Two Bond movies, technically, because Never Say Never Again was around this time, too. Mm-hmm. That's right. You include this one, make it a third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you might as well be. Well, this movie's about as dated with technology as a Bond and Largo playing like that battleship knockoff. So the truth is, this fell well short of the previous two films. And we'll talk about the fallout of that when we get to Superman 4. Original title of this, Superman vs. Superman. But producers of Kramer vs. Kramer threatened to sue. So the Salkinds decided to go with Superman 3. So is that where Zack Snyder got it? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too when I read that. It's crazy, because you think that DC would at least have this, though, I don't think anybody's credited DC with having smarts up there in the executive suites, but you think they might be able just to pull out a comic book and say, here's a little something called Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. We're doing it based on this. Mm-hmm. No, they capitulate and decide just to go with the, I guess, standard bearer at the time of just throwing a numeral onto it. Mm. All right, boys. That's a lot of behind the scenes. What do you guys say we dive into this? Because guess what? I probably have more notes on this than I did on Superman the movie. <laughs> I do too, and I can't believe that. <laughs> Not to break the streak, the, the silver streak, if you will, but I don't. <laughs> so we get what kind of movie this is right away as we open. Not with title credits, moving through space, with John Williams' theme booming through speakers. It's with a... Yo-Yo carrying Richard Pryor at the unemployment office, giving reasons why he only lasted 28 minutes at his last kitchen job, and he's getting mad at the woman at the desk for calling him a bum. Now, this was notorious, as despite being top-billed, Christopher Reeve is second fiddle to this character that we actually get the origin story of. Three movies in a row, Christopher Reeve cannot be the star. (laughs) Cannot start off his own movie. First, he doesn't get top billing. Then he doesn't get top billing again. And the time that he, I guess, gets top billing, though Saul kind puts his name first, we start the movie with the kind of villain. (laughs) Though if you ever watch the trailer for this, it lets you know the entire motivation of Gus from beginning to end. As a kid, I laughed at every single scene Richard Pryor was in. And then my dad would be watching a stand-up special with him where he would utter every four-letter word in the book, and i think, wow, the guy from Superman 3 is doing other things. <laughs> As an adult, I can tell this is different from the Lex Luthor three villain plots from before, and I also understand this is a toned-down for a PG-rated film, Richard Pryor. I think he is borderline insufferable through 95% of this movie. Uh, It's not the fact that he's sanitized compared to what he used to be, because that's not the issue. The problem is twofold. Number one, the back alleys of Gotham City don't have as much mugging as he does throughout this entire movie. It's funny we're doing this after Pirates, because this reminded me of later Johnny Depp. The prep balls, the just staring at the camera, making dumb facial expressions. He's hampered by the fact he's not given anything funny to say, but this character is entirely motivated by money. And if you're looking at this as any kind of an arc, because he's basically the protagonist of this movie, which is also baffling, he learns a lesson, but there's no consequences to anything he does at the end. It's very baffling in how it's done, and I think it hinders this entire movie. 
he's not fun to watch. I don't think he's very funny. And it distracts from some of the Superman stuff we get here that I actually like and respond to. It's kind of appropriate that this is Superman 3, because there is three, at minimum, completely different movies going on here. And Richard Pryor's in maybe one and a half of them. Man, I love watching Richard Pryor comedy. The documentaries on his life are absolutely fascinating. I think he's one of the brilliant 70s comedians. I think he's that counterculture type of just person I love right there with Carlin. But he is in a different movie than Christopher Reeve is in. And I think that's one of the issues that's going on here. And the editing doesn't help this movie whatsoever in trying to bridge those different film ideas together is a comic foil i mean sure i feel like i'm watching the toy i mean that's kind of what they're bringing out here it's tough because some scenes i'm like oh my god what the hell are they thinking but i'm cheesing along with Pryor because i have a good time with richard Pryor. people who follow me on letterbox kind of knew where i was going with this because i actually rewatched the toy this week to kind of quote-unquote prepare for what i was going to get with this coincidentally that was directed by richard donner Yeah. By the way, that movie, and this is the review I left on Letterboxd. It's like one sentence review. I've never seen a movie so racist be so sweet. (laughs) And you know what? The comedy in that, I was laughing pretty hard. It's a pretty funny movie. So Richard Pryor can be sanitized and work. And I think sometimes he does here, but he is given the keys to the ship as well, Matt, because he is mugging and he is improving. And 90% of his dialogue, this is shocking to you guys, is all improv. But I do kind of like him, you know, not as much as a kid. When I was a kid, I really enjoyed all this stuff. But he gets the story along. And you know what? You pay a guy $5 million, you're going to put him front and center. Let's not forget, though, he's got more white surface up his nose than the entire surface of Krypton. Of course. Yeah, that was going on. So Gus is leaving the unemployment office, angry that he is no longer eligible for unemployment, and he sees a matchbox that advertises computer skills. And we cut. (laughs) (laughs) Just such a random... I know. It got light, and it's just like... The entire rest of this movie is based on this matchbook. <laughs> and yet, yet computers. Computers. They're the wave of the future. <laughs> Which they were. Wow. They, they and were. you know what? You hear these producers on this commentary. Oh, my God. They talk about that to no end. Like, look how progressive we were. The computers take, are taking over. Of course they were. <laughs> mm. uh, we'll get to more of what they say throughout the course of this. So what we cut to is an opening credit sequence that serves as an eight-minute comedy bit that, I again, I used to love with Clark Kent. He's pulling out fire penguins, and there's a blind guy, and the guy's fawning over a woman who we'll learn later is named Lorelai. And one thing I learned about Lorelai that I learned very early on and was one of the first pieces of movie trivia I ever learned, and was very proud to flaunt, by the way, as a kid, was that the necklace Lorelai wears in this movie <laughs> is the same exact one Daryl Hannah wears in Splash. <laughs> You would be proud of that. <laughs> and I think I told you that in our viewing. <laughs> Matt, I know you're just aching to get involved here. Oh, you, did you not like this opening credit sequence here? Eight minutes, by the way. Oh, trust me, I felt every second. <laughs> this is a, a comedy of errors, emphasis on errors. I understand humor is entirely subjective. But when I look at the first two Superman movies... I think they capture a balance where they are predominantly lighthearted, but they're able to incorporate those darker components when they need to so that it never becomes an outright farce. In this movie, with this sequence, you are immediately establishing a tonal shift from the first two to where I feel about this movie the way that Adam felt about Batman Forever. 
where I find a lot of this to be a step too far. And also, maybe I'm just getting older, but I was Tommy Lee Jones myself watching this movie. Just no fun to be had. I look like that that picture of him at the whatever award ceremony that was where it just looked like I'd rather be anywhere else. And it keeps escalating from the frickin' telephone booths getting knocked over to the blind guy that loses his dog and it inadvertently is painting traffic. People are colliding into each other. And it's a great statement for the movie because while this is going on, there are sporadic appearances by Clark Kent putting out fires, which is how I feel about Christopher Reeve in this movie where he is doing his best to try to salvage this like one of those oil tankers that is spilling its contents which is kind of what my brain was doing as I felt the the juice that keeps me going leave my head and go towards my mouth as I was ingesting copious amounts of alcohol to get through this movie. You know the first time that you were in the movie theater and you're watching Rogue One and you get ready for the music and the score starts and then suddenly it's a different score and it starts off on a sour note? Mm-hmm. One, this score did the exact same thing. You get ready for that Superman score, and it's like, they decide to change the score, which I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then we go into this, and I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) I got a bad feeling about this. Some of these gags are almost funny, but I'm Matt said, like this blind man walking around in circles. Okay, but then it keeps going and keeps going. And yes, comedy in threes and you take something around long enough to make it funny again, but, oh, my God, did you just really waka waka a fucking bank robbery? Like, it's just, <laughs> oh, boy, that nobody looked at this and went, um, cut, let's, uh, let's trim this down, let's do it again. I mean, this isn't a short movie, and this thing goes on for eight-plus <laughs> minutes. This is the opening credit scene, and, whew, Wow. I felt like I was sucked into a black hole like we were literally in the first two films because this thing, it's a choice. It's, it's, though I'll say at least you kind of know what movie you're going into with this first eight minutes. I loved the Penguins as a kid. Absolutely loved them. I wanted one so bad. <laughs> the, the scenes of Clark Kent showing up and doing his little bit, I enjoy. Yeah. Because it's fun Clark Kent. But everything around that, damn. Mm-hmm. damn I mean, Metropolis has turned into a dark city. Metropolis has got some issues. They need more than just Superman to figure this out. (laughs) So after this credit sequence, we see a robbery taking place, and the result of the robbery is that a guy is stuck in a car with a fire hydrant under it. So as it fills with water, here's Superman. He's changing not a phone booth, but a photo booth. Love the photo booth. Yeah, me too. He gives the pictures of him as Superman to a kid. By the way, this kid, same kid that played him as a baby in 78. So nice little Mm. bit of trivia there. And shows up in Man of Steel. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, yeah, he really has nowhere to go but up. (laughs) (laughs) Up, up the way. Superman flies in, pulls the sap, stuck in a car, out of danger. Not the best rescue sequence, but it gets Superman in the picture pretty quick. It does. It gets him in here quicker than we got the other ones, which has kind of been a complaint. I feel like we also get the Superman that we want, that I want, is in this photo booth. He goes in. We see him change. We see him smile to the kid. We see him protect his identity. We see him rescue somebody. Like, I like this reveal. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he actually, throughout the course of this movie, has to go someplace to change into his costume as opposed to just randomly phasing into it like we saw the other movies. I like the change because it's a little more what we should have anyway. I was happy to see Superman immediately. And he, I'll say this about the movie. I like that Superman in this movie, though, is never made the butt of a joke. Yeah. Everything with him is played pretty earnestly. And I think that's why I can't outright trash everything about this movie. It's not really a Superman movie for most of it. But when it is, there 
are more things that I like as opposed to don't. But because the Gus storyline dominates the narrative, every time Superman shows up, I'm reminded, oh, that's right, I'm watching a Superman movie. (laughs) (laughs) Weird thing about Superman here, though, is that, yeah, he he pulls this guy out of the car, but couldn't he have stopped the robbery? (laughs) I don't know. It kind of hit me as I was watching it this time. So we see Jimmy Olsen. He gets mustard on his jacket as we cut to a computer class with Gus. Well, we learn that Gus is relatively smart as he does something with a computer that really impresses his professor. And he gives a sort of half-proud, half-goofy smirk of pride. We then cut to the Daily Planet, where we're getting exposition on every one of the quote-unquote villains we're going to be following throughout the course of this film. We're seeing pictures of Ross Webster, his sister, not brother, (laughs) Vera, (laughs) <laughs> and Lorelai, who's just defined as being, well, Russes. Now, we're going to we're gonna be discussing these three later, but let's address another elephant in the room here, boys. Specifically, Margot Kidder's Lois Lane. This and what other scene at the end are really the only two times we see her in this movie. And some have speculated that it was because she was very angry at what the producers did to Donner in the last film and wanted to get back at her by giving her a small role in this one. The producers, for their part, have said, both in the press and in this commentary, that that wasn't the case. We've seen the Superman Lois Lane storyline for two straight films. They wanted to give them someone else to play off of in this one. That's someone else being Lana Lang. Now, we'll talk about the execution of that storyline as we go. But for now, I want to ask both of you guys, do you agree with the instinct to just kind of get rid of Lois Lane for this one? I would say yes, only because it would have been awkward to have her go to Smallville with him because they would have really played up the love triangle component that I can't stand in a lot of superhero narratives, specifically Superman. Uh, That's part of one of the reasons why I turned against Smallville after a certain point was they really emphasized Lana, Lois, and Clark to the point where they could have just called that show Three Ways to Krypton or Three Ways to Smallville. That's basically what it became. So her absence, I wasn't longing for it, largely because where are you going to put her? That's the other Mm -hmm. thing. This movie's got more real estate than Gene Hackman does in the first movie. (laughs) Uh, And this movie apparently is filled with timeshares because they're all like black holes that just suck up any enjoyment that you would have on vacation. (laughs) One, I got to say that the producers absolutely blackballed her in this. Like, I think they're full. I think they've treated her so fucking misogynistically since day one. I don't think that that's in doubt. But I also feel like her and Richard Pryor probably had a contest to say who could do the most amount of drugs Mm. during the course of getting ready for this film. Mm. And unfortunately, he was bankable as a drugged up person, you know, and she's Margot Kidder. It's sad Hollywood reality in the way of how it would work. I think what happens in this movie and the way that they play the love portion of it is kind of what I've been missing, though. I've been saying that I didn't really believe Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder, but I think that gets fixed a bunch in this film. And I think casting and feeling that somebody is close in age is a part of it. Because as much as Margot and Reeve are fairly close in age, they never feel like it to me. This is only three, four years after the filming of the last couple films, and boy, she looks like she's aged about a decade, doesn't she? I mean, I hate speaking ill will of the dead, but I'm like, jeez... Well, and it's the Carrie Fisher type of thing as mm-hmm. well. And it's a damn shame in this time, and it's not that it's gone, but what Hollywood felt they could do and what they did do to some of these women who were the co-stars of these roles is fucking unacceptable. Mm-hmm. There's also one elephant in the room as well. She was dating Richard Pryor at the time. Oh, was she? I didn't know that. Because they had, aware. they had worked together on uh, some kind of hero, Oh. and they were in a relationship. Wow. Not a particularly lengthy one, mm-hmm. but it was there nevertheless. Wow. 
So we see Mr. White, he's drawing a bingo number for an all-expenses-paid vacation to South America as Clark enters and says that he had an idea to do a story on returning to his hometown of Smallville for a high school reunion. I have to say, as a guy who thought Smallville got the short shift in the first Superman movie, again, I like this premise. I like the idea of him going back there. I like the idea because we've had two films set in Metropolis. It was all done there. We need a different place to go. Let's take it to a place that we know that he's from and decide what kind of story and what kind of mileage we can get out of that. How tall can we get those wheat fields to grow? So I think it's a good idea. I do appreciate that the movie puts more of an emphasis on Clark Kent, more so than the second one did. But my question is, the the high school reunion is a decent way to get him there. But they also established later on that it's the first time he's been back since his mother passed away. Mm -hmm. And I find it hard to believe that he would have not paid any visit this Superman prior to her death, unless she died unexpectedly, like out of nowhere. That's a small little, (laughs) small piece that I don't quite 100% buy. That's a great point, actually. That is a weird choice to not show that or show the effects of that. I do love how Lois looks at Clark when he puts the Smallville sweater up to his chest and Clark just clears things up by saying, stands for Smallville. That was a nice little scene. I still think these two play off each other pretty well. I think that the very minimal time that they get works out Mm -hmm. good. So Lois leaves and goes to Bermuda as Clark leaves and no one gives a shit. (laughs) He's just like, bye, everybody. And no one cares. We cut to Websco Industries, which is where Gus is working, and he starts bitching about his first paycheck. Been there. <laughs> me too. <laughs> That's every teenager. It cracks me up, though, that you can tell how dated this thing is when they have to explain what Social Security is doing. I know, right? <laughs> he says he wants his money now so he can enjoy it while he's young. Gus stays later and puts the taxes onto his paycheck, or as he puts it, he's looking for a raise. We then cut to a bus as Jimmy serves his purpose and gives conversation that Clark couldn't care less about. And we move on to what was then and is still now. I'm going to go ahead and say my favorite part of this movie. All except Jimmy falling while taking pictures. I never liked Jimmy. No one gives a shit about Jimmy. I don't want him here. Yeah, well, we learned 100% the one person who really doesn't give a shit is Zack Snyder. (laughs) You're not kidding. (laughs) The only thing I did like was seeing Superman walk through the fire when Jimmy's down. As a kid, this was a real wow moment for me. I love this chemical plant fire and the way the music swells as Superman leads people to safety through a metal pipe that serves as a slide, and we get a plot point that will serve as a main part of the film's finale, Chekhov's Acid. Oh. <laughs> what do you guys feel, besides the last part, what do you guys feel about this scene? Well, I like that, unlike Superman 2 with the whole Paris bombing, mm. this feels so much more organic, I guess is the right word, which is funny because apparently you can synthesize materials like kryptonite out of nowhere (laughs) in this continuity, which is fascinating. But I like that we're seeing Superman in action in his hometown without having to just come up with a way for him to go there. It's just it happens on his way. You could argue it's a little too matter-of-fact, but I like the way that it's executed. The effects here are good, I'll say that. But I'm glad that they're also not going too overboard with this particular sequence. Unfortunately, it seems like the writer's forgot what the word climax means as we get to the later portion of this movie. But for here, when it's not Richard Pryor and it's Superman up to this point, I'm digging it. Man, I dig this scene so much. This scene is fire. I gotta say it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But everything about it, I like the music. I like the action. This is kind of the Superman heroics, you know, that we haven't always gotten. It's a massive 
action piece where Superman is there to save the day. I like the use of his powers. They're smart. They're used in different ways. This freezing of the lake and him separating it and bringing it over. As a kid, I thought that was absolutely amazing. I love the thought that Superman could do mm-hmm. that. Even using his x-ray vision to see Jimmy's broken leg. Mm-hmm. Hopefully sepsis creeps in and he won't be here next week. <laughs> but, yeah, something about this scene. The only thing, and it's weird, I'm an adult now, I'm, I'm taking it. I don't know how this chemical fire in the Midwest of the United States is going to wipe out the entire eastern seaboard, but yeah, yeah I'll go with it. But yeah, I think this is... 25 minutes in, 20 minutes in, the high point of the film. <laughs> yeah, this is a very triumphant end to the scene. I agree with you, Adam. And in a bit of funny irony as a kid, when this fire chief looks up and says, man, that man's a miracle. I was convinced he said Batman's a miracle and we were going to get an awesome crossover. Little did I know. <laughs> <laughs> we then cut to the Smallville Class of 65 reunion, and this is where we meet Lana Lang, played by future Mrs. Kent on the TV show Smallville, Annette O'Toole. She is in Smallville. Yeah, okay. yeah, she plays she plays Ma Kent. Sorry, I was looking it up when I saw the credits in Annette O'Toole. I was like, Annette O'Toole, Annette O'Toole, why do I know that name? <laughs> oh, that's, that is awesome. Yeah, and she was in 48 Hours before this, so she had a little bit of a career before she got involved here. Now, I didn't mind this character or her son, who we'll talk about here in about five minutes, but now, as I watch this with a critical eye as an adult, she comes off as kind of pathetic. Nope. Absolutely love Lana Lang. I think this is the character that we need to play against Clark. I think that she's that down-home country girl. She's Ma Kent. It's amazing that She's in Smallville, and one day I'll watch that. But she's that country girl that's just not leaving home. She's going to stay there because it's what she knows for good and bad. And I think she's fantastic. I think she's great. Yeah, she's got a little of the woe is me. I don't like everything with Brad, but she at least stands up for herself. She doesn't have to have somebody stand up for her. I think she's Lois without being annoying and big fan of what they do with Lana. Matt, be the tiebreaker, sir. Well, I'm going to piss one of you off, so I'm just going to speak my mind. (laughs) I guess I could play it down the middle, but what would that solve? (laughs) My problem is more so that I don't like that it takes Superman for her to muster up the courage to leave Smallville. That's the one thing that's always bothered me. And my favorite nitpick in this movie is that Smallville is a, it's in the title, it's a very small town. But they have airports that offer direct flights from Smallville to Metropolis, so it can't be that small of a town to have a functioning airport. Nice point. I like her. I like her flirtations with Clark. This is not the Peter Parker, MJ, Gwen Stacy thing where it's like, all right, why are you with this one when you clearly should be with the other one? But having said that, I just don't like Lana Lang as a character. I need to be upfront and say that. One of the things that really turned me off on both Smallville and reading comics for the longest of time. So it's good, but do I think the movie could have functioned without it? Yes. When I moved from L.A., I moved to a small town in Nevada, really small town. And I met a lot of people like this, people who had spent their entire lives in that town, surrounded by the same people, the same asshole ex-boyfriends who can't get past their high school accomplishments, and they want it out. Here, I'm not criticizing the performance of Miss O'Toole. I'm just criticizing the character. I'm just not sure I like her very much. What I do like, though, is how Clark is playing off her. It's like his communication skills have taken a nosedive. Like when he says that maybe the problem with the potato salad is that there's too much mayonnaise. But she was actually talking about her problems in her last relationship. No matter what I have to say about the movie, I still think Reeve is on his game here. And I like the chemistry these two have. These two together are great. Just putting them in the room and watching them back and forth, you believe the chemistry between these Mm -hmm. two. Even though, you know, it's a slow build and everything else. And I appreciate that she likes... Clark. There's something about that. And I think 
I mean, this movie's all about duology, separate sides, and everything else. And it's Lois loves Superman, but we're finding a woman here who really has it for Clark, and I think that's important. Though I gotta say, class of 65, if we graduated and when this movie's supposed to be, um, are we supposed to believe this is now like a 40-year-old Superman? <laughs> I don't you know? I just, yeah. man, the timeline of this one, especially when we decide that we're going to send a satellite later on, searching through thousands of years into the past. Whoo, Nelly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you still think Reeve is on his game here? Do you still think he's okay and he plays off O'Toole okay? I just wish the movie was more focused on him. I think that's one of the more damning elements of it, is that he's doing great work in service of something that doesn't feel like it's entirely focused around Superman or Clark Kent exclusively. I agree there, because even in Smallville, we just keep going back to these other characters to get way too much time. Brad? Well, speaking of which, let's let's go back to Gus. So, <laughs> we then cut to Wes. <laughs> yeah, the movie sure does every five minutes. <laughs> yeah, like, I have expected Ted Knight from the Super Friends show to go, meanwhile, in this other movie, no one gives a shit about. <laughs> we then cut to Wesco, where Gus's plan of getting his expenses check comes to fruition, and Gus cannot hide his excitement over his $85,000 check. I had completely forgotten that Office Space clearly calls out yes. that they steal this from Superman 3 mm-hmm. until I had taken the note that, oh my God, this is the Office Space mm-hmm. plot. No, it's just the rounding error. Yeah, I mean, it's appropriate that they're using a salami scheme because a lot of the actors were salty as fuck about how they treated Reed's daughter. <laughs> so we then cut to Ross Webster as he's going over his unexplained business expenses. Now, this character, this business tycoon, Ross Webster, he does come off as a third-rate Lex, I'll say that. Supposedly, they wanted either Frank Langella or Alan Alda for this character. I can get what they're going for. As again, I don't think you want to repeat yourselves. But I'm not sure this dynamic of three bumbling villains is any better than what we got a couple weeks ago, let alone last week. What do you guys think of these three who uh, we got the exposition of earlier? Uh, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not even generic Lex Luthor. This is the, not Walmart brand, this is like gas station brand of how diluted this is. And you, you how do you go from Franklin Jella and Alan Alda to On the Magnificent Seven? Arguably number seven. I know Robert Vaughn was a big deal when The Man from Uncle was on, but that was, what, 20 years before this movie? Nothing about this character is effective. You never feel like he's a threat, and the movie has to contrive ways to take Superman out of the picture just so his schemes can be successful. And I think that is a damning sign of when you have a weak-as-fuck villain. And going from, like, this is such a step down going from General Zod to this. Your superhero movies always have to escalate in my opinion, when it comes to the threats or the villains. And here it's like we're taking a step back, and every time they cut to them, they feel like the lesser villains from the Adam West Batman show, where the ones where you don't have, like, Penguin or Riddler, and instead they keep going back to King Tut for some reason, where it's like, why do you keep doing this? Stop trying to force him upon us. Everything with them does not work for me. Their dynamic is not funny, and his plan is so just... Oh, God, it's so fucking boring and uninteresting. Like, I, I could control the world's coffee supply based on how much we consume in our house. If that's all it takes to be a supervillain, I should be in Arkham Asylum. Boy, wait till we get to nuclear, man. You'll be begging for these three again. Uh, well, I'm gonna, I'll fight you on that oh. right now, because I've seen Superman 4 a lot more than I've seen Superman 3. Adam, what about you, sir? What do you think of these bumbling three? Oh, my God. The, the, oh, son of a bitch. Um, no. No and no. All I keep thinking is I feel like I'm, you know, every time Vaughn shows up, I feel like I'm watching the beginning of Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
his, his, his freaking sister. I'm just like, isn't that Mama Fratelli from the Goonies? Because <laughs> that's just where I go with that, and I hate that film. Lorelai, you know, there's a shame, because if you pay attention in this movie, they make it clear that she, everything that she's doing is an mm-hmm. act, the little Barbie doll thing. But I hate that Barbie doll. Freaking, I hate that voice. I hate everything that they're putting on with her. So I, oh my goodness, I could not loathe these three more. It's amazing that from a film series that almost came from the three musketeers, these musketeers are fucking ruinous every time they show up. It's just, no. But it's amazing because he is the most Lex Luthor in the way of an actual plot and scheme and everything else than we get in this entire film franchise. Hmm. But he is the most Lex Luthor-ish of any Lex Luthor I think that we're going to see in all these Superman movies that we're going to cover. Interesting. So Webster says that the person who stole from him wouldn't make himself known unless he was a total moron. But he looks out the window and sees Gus pull up in a brand new Ferrari, so I guess the cat's out of the bag now. (laughs) We then cut to a bowling alley where no one wants to take Lana's son Ricky as their partner. Now this kid was a nerd before being a nerd was cool. And if I'm not a fan of Lana, what this kid pulls throughout the movie makes me want to turn on them both. (laughs) I hate this fucking kid. You just don't like kids. But... <laughs> but this this franchise, kids are portrayed as they are attracted to the prospect of death because we have the Niagara Falls kid in the last movie. <laughs> and this kid, I am convinced that if you locked him in a room with some construction paper and a pair of scissors, he'd bleed out in about two minutes somehow. <laughs> But I like that Clark stands up for him and helps him out. Like I like how he helps out the little guy. This is very much sort of how Spider-Man likes to help people out. I like when superheroes actually do stuff with their powers that's kind of clever, like with the uh, blowing the ball so that it knocks over all the pins and basically shatters them. And all that wooden shrapnel would eviscerate everyone in that room. <laughs> but that notwithstanding, this is on par for the series. Kids are just dumb. And it's kind of Superman needs to save them from themselves. Yeah, it's Superman looking out for the little guy. I think Clark sees himself in this kid kind of getting picked on and not having a lot of friends. And I think he sees himself in a kid, and I I dig it as much as (laughs) I agree with Matt that the only children that Garrett like come out of the corn. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the kid, but I like Clark's relationship in response to the kid. So as Matt said, Clark stumbles upon an ashtray, sneezes, and we get a strike that I always wanted to make as a kid. And then Lana says, tight," and we move on. Let's go back to Gus. Gus is then summoned to the boss's office, and we cut to him nervously playing with his yo-yo in the elevator. When he walks out, Ross isn't very angry. He's actually impressed. He comes up with an idea to blackmail him, saying in order for him to stop from going to prison, he wants Gus to help in some schemes to make him a more powerful tycoon. For example, by helping Columbia reason with him by giving them a lesson by reprogramming a weather satellite into destroying the entire coffee crop. Yes, Mr. Bond, my weather satellite <laughs> will take over the world. Is it just me, or is this guy who brags about never wearing the same pairs of socks the 1983 version of Donald Trump? <laughs> oh, shit. I never got that. But yeah. <laughs> I put that together while watching it for this podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. Stormy Daniels being more alive. Yeah, I can see it. Does that make his sister Steve Bannon? <laughs> We cut to the couple who won the South American trip and Mr. White taking pictures with them while also yelling at Jimmy for not coming back from the chemical fire with one usable picture. We then cut to Gus getting off the bus in Smallville and running into a car door being opened by Clark. 
because we can't even have Clark Kent go to Smallville without having to put Gus in the exact same town. <laughs> oh, geez, Superman can't even go home without Gus stealing fucking his own town from him. We move on to a picnic with Lana, Clark, and Lana's son, Ricky, along with their dog, Buster. We're seeing Clark go through the choices of food and grab some what he thinks is pate, but it's actually Buster's dog food. <laughs> They then get to talking, and Clark tells Lana that she would do good things in Metropolis, but she's concerned she would be a nuisance to him. And she then ends the conversation in a romantic way. Any conversation ends by complaining that her oil pan is leaking. I bet it is. (laughs) As Clark looks at it, he hears Buster crying for help as Ricky, the klutz that he is, has fallen and hit his head on a rock. I thought he had no idea. Yeah, so did I! Somehow, in the span of them having a picnic, this kid runs like three miles down the frickin' road. Maybe they were setting up the Justice League, and this kid was going to turn out to be the Flash. (laughs) Here comes Superman to rush in and save him, and Ricky is amazed as Superman smiles and meets both Ricky and Lana. He flies away, and we cut to Clark finding Buster snooping around in the sewer. Before I move on to that, but Matt, you said you liked the Superman stuff in this. This wasn't too bad of a scene, was it? No, but it's kind of obtrusive because he's saving people from their own stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> I want Superman to have the mantra of everybody gets one, and after that, it's like you're on your yeah, own. Yeah, good point. <laughs> I like that it turns around to, at the end of it, Clark is there. To me, this is just why I like the juxtaposition between Lois and Lana. Lois would be like, oh my god, Superman, Superman, now my oil pan's really wet. <laughs> and Lana is at least like, hey, Superman was here, but doesn't ignore Clark just because dude in flashy red tights shows up. So Clark tells them that where he is, he sees Superman all the time. And Ricky, being the crap opportunist that he is, asks Clark for his autograph. And I love how Reeves plays this as he storms off, blabbing that if he had a nickel for every time some brat asks him for Superman's autograph, he'd be a millionaire. Nice little job by Christopher Reeve here. We cut back to Gus. As he wanders into the Wesco Smallville office, coincidentally being overseen by Brad Wilson. And this is some real prior humor here with him wearing this massive cowboy hat as they drink. And he pretends to be drunk until Brad just passes out. And Matt, you must hate this scene. I hated the logic of it because it apparently Gus did his research and found the one person who works there that more than likely has an addiction problem and he takes full advantage of it. So Gus is indeed the big villain of this movie. But this goes on for like five goddamn minutes. They're doing the golden eye thing where he has to put both keys in at the same time. (laughs) He has to put the guy in a string. All this just... I understand stretch it out, but even Plastic Man would be like, all right, enough's enough. Just... Let it snap off and hopefully hit him and knock him unconscious. Gus wanders around the office doing things like being scared by his own reflection until he, as Matt says, he plugs into the main computer, but he can't get both keys in at the same time. So he drags Brad to the computer and rigs it so that they can indeed be inserted at the same time. I am invincible. Sorry. Wait, no, that was Goldeneye. The exact same way, by hooking somebody up with a nice. rope. Man, between things like Gus making car noises as he drags Brad to the computer to even the music here, you just can't get over the fact how fucking different the tone is here, can you? This is why Otis was a supporting character. This is a different movie. Mm-hmm. These scenes like this are a completely different movie than the rest of the film being told. They don't belong here. As a kid, when I'm eight years old, Wait, when does this come out? 85? When I'm six years 83. old? 83. Shit, when I'm four years old? <laughs> when Matt's, you know, ten years from being born? Yeah, it's kind of fun because you get the silly slapsticky. When you're an adult watching this, 
it is just a different kind of what the hell are they thinking. This film is edited with the subtlety of a freaking KitchenAid food processor. It's just whiplash-inducing how much it's back and forth. So Gus plugs into the computer, and we're seeing him do things like make an ATM give out cash at random, make stoplights, fight with one another, which is a scene I loved as a kid. It makes no sense, but that made me yeah. laugh so hard when they, <laughs> one goes up and they start like literally punching each other. I also love how when these two guys collide into each other, when they have their quote-unquote fist fight outside the gas station, he hooks his arm into the car door. Yeah. Because the continuity is so bad, and it wasn't secured all the way, the actor has to struggle to keep his hand in the door, and it slips out, I think, two times. <laughs> and we're also seeing Gus up the credit card fees of old couples, which was a funny scene where the guy just takes the <laughs> grapefruit, just puts it on his wife's face. After all this, he finally finds the Vulcan satellite, which is sent to where he was told to send it, and causes a massive storm over Columbia. This would have been successful had it not been for our red and blue hero, but we'll get to that here in a bit. Hey, Spider-Man showed up? <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Russ, who can't stop laughing at what he thinks he did, until Gus comes to crash the party with a bit that's not unlike the one he did on tonight's show to get him this gig. And this is pretty much what he did when he was talking about how much he loved the Superman movies. You know how you save enough money to pay for Richard Pryor? You don't show what Superman did. You just have Richard Pryor tell you what <laughs> Superman did. Exactly. Oh, no, that's worse because this is where he puts on the frickin' table drape and mm -hmm. the falls off cake. the wielding. I think the alternative is considerably worse. He calls Vera man and then explains that Superman ruined Ross's plans. And then he falls off the building into the streets of Metropolis. It, as a kid, it was funny. We're not it a was... bit your friend. <laughs> if he left the bitch, I would have been like, all right, you guys can watch this on your own. To me, this is Jar Jar before Jar Jar. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Because I picture Richard Lester in the room going, Richard Pryor is the key to all this. I, I just can't believe how much of this they kept in and kept going. This is not, not a short film. This thing's 205. And... Just so much of this being prior slapstickiness is, god damn it, so much. <laughs> this movie is two fucking hours. Yeah, it is. Russ gets angry and realizes he needs to get rid of Superman in order for him to fulfill his own plans. And it's Lorelai, of all people, who, Adam, you brought this up, that she's the one who kind of, every once in a while, she shows her actual true self. She's just like, actually, it's kryptonite. That was Superman's weakness. So, Ross sends Gus to have the satellite find it for him. Here we go. Save it. Do you Save remember? It. <laughs> We're getting there. No, just that it's take the satellite and just point something at the area where Krypton was. Krypton was galaxies away and blew up, if we remember, thousands of your Earth years ago. Yep. It, it was not over where Uranus is. Uranus is what wrote this script. No. It's fucking just an indeterminate area away. Yeah, it's weird how they cherry-pick what continuity matters, because this is a direct reference to the interview Superman did with Lois, where she explicitly says that kryptonite is his weakness. So they remember that, but they don't remember the geography of space and how long it took that ship with Clark inside to actually hit Earth. That's right. The mention of that Lois article gets more screen time than Lois gets in this movie anyway. <laughs> I'll wait till Superman returns. <laughs> oh, I can, I can keep waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Gus does what he's told, but needs another ingredient for the duplicate, so he chooses tar. <laughs> Marlboro is out, but camel lights are in. <laughs> the quote-unquote stronger of the two. <laughs> we cut to the Daily Planet, where the couple who went to South America are upset about the storms they encountered. 
and Clark gets a frantic call from Lana, who says that Ricky blabbed about the autograph he got from Superman so much that he implies Superman was coming to Ricky's birthday party. And she pretty much begs him to talk to Superman and convince him to come. Clark succumbs to it, and I hate that this scene happens, and again, Ricky is not the most likable of characters. But what I like about it is what Lana says at the end of the conversation. She says, Superman's wonderful, but then tells Clark that he's the best. So, Adam, you brought this up earlier, and it's a great point. While Lois was in love with the man who Clark actually is, Lana is in love with Clark himself. And to me, that creates a different enough dynamic that I kind of like. Enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just you need that for them not to be the same character, just one a city girl and one a country Mm -hmm. girl. There needs to be some differences between them, and I think that's kind of a core one. And I think in a movie that is fighting literally here in a little bit about the duality of somebody, it just plays into that theme a little bit more. Gus gets his cut of kryptonite from the lab, and then we cut to the party for Superman. Wasn't expecting the party in tribute to him for rescuing Ricky, and in the midst of this is Gus, who shows up and gives a patent routine, while also giving Superman the cut of kryptonite he got from the lab. Oh my god. Now I know, comic pundits are going to yell and scream that this should be red kryptonite, but to me, what I'll say in its defense is that what we did not have were people who read comics going to message boards back in the early 80s. There were no fanboys to accommodate. What there was, was cinematic history, and a couple films ago, we saw Gene Hackman give something that looked a lot like this piece of rock to Superman, and he almost died as a result of it. So when I see Superman grab this piece of rock after Gus gives it to him, and it doesn't work as expected, it makes me wonder, what did it do to him. That is my defense of this, and I'm sticking to it. Adam, are you going to stick by me on this? Oh, I'm not sticking by this entire scene for a couple reasons. <laughs> One, after Gus gets this, I guess, 3D printed kryptonite rock that shows up, that the bad guys know that there's this party celebration going on and get Gus and Mama Fratelli in this fucking military outfit that no military officer has a problem with to show up. I mean, Superman didn't know about this event, but the bad guys do. And then Superman, for all his knowing of what happened to him before, gleefully accepts and reaches out and grabs this obvious green glowing rock. (laughs) I mean, dude, you had this hanging around your neck in a freaking Flavor Flav chain just two films ago, and it almost killed you. But now you're like, yeah, I'll take it and put it on my shelf. And then just giving, like, five minutes of Richard Pryor doing a stand-up act was like, okay, we know what you hired him for, but god damn it. Yeah, yeah. to answer your question, Garrett, the fact that the giant space rock is not colored correctly is, like, the fifth thing in this scene. Um, That's the thing that don't make sense and or infuriated me. And I think Adam touched on all of the superseding four. I just... It's just so grating watching Richard Pryor throughout most of this movie. I'm trying to think of another example where a hiring a comedian backfired as much on the overall production of a movie as this. Because say what you want about Batman Forever, at least Jim Carrey, when he did his Jim Carrey stuff, some of it was actually funny. Not to me. It was grating. Oh, I know we had that fight. Like I said, I feel about this movie the way you guys felt about Batman Forever. What bugs me is that Gus is fully into knowing that this is going to harm slash kill Superman, but doesn't want to harm Superman. This is all done in the service of... He goes along with it just because he wants a supercomputer. Well, that, and he wants to but stay out of jail. No, he wants until that until that comes up. He wants to stay out of jail too. Let's not forget that. 
That's right. The white guy is going to put the black guy back in jail because he's going to take the rap. Exactly. Gus tells Russ that Superman didn't die from the rock he gave him. And Russ says that he sent him to kill Superman and he couldn't even do that one simple thing. <laughs> I did that made me laugh. But to me, that's a perfect Lex Luthor type of line right there. The henchman is, I sent you to kill Superman. You couldn't do this little exactly. thing. It's like Otis writing the numbers down wrong. You know, same thing. We then cut to Lana's house as poor Buster is chained up outside and Superman is going through picture albums. And when Lana gets a call that a truck is stuck on a bridge, Superman tells her, oh, I always get there on time. So they sit down and Lana says, are you sure you don't want to go to the bridge? And Superman has a realization, leaves, and sees that he's too late. And if there's one thing I can universally praise in this movie, it is Reeves' performance in it. We're going to see him evolve into something darker, a darker version of Superman, and yes, they are going to dye up his suit with a touch of black and comb his hair a bit different. But Reeves conveys so well through his eyes that he's a different person. I don't think I can praise this performance in this movie enough. What do you boys think about the change Reeves goes through here? This should have been the entire movie. Mm. It's amazing how much the Raimi Spider-Man movies follow the story beats of these movies to a T. <laughs> but I like the idea of exploring his dark side of the whole idea. Of what if Superman didn't value humanity as much as he should and became that self-centered person that he is more than capable of? But much like him losing his powers, this is 15 minutes of devotion, and then it is dropped. This is like what I've said. There's too many plots. We got supercomputers. We got going back to Smallville. We got evil Superman. And we got Richard Pryor. All four of these components don't mesh in the same movie. And in a movie that's really exploring Clark Kent as a person, this makes the most logical sense to do, but it's nowhere near as substantial as it should be. And that one thing that should snap him out of it, a la Peter slapping Mary Jane, doesn't really happen in this movie. It just we're running out of real estate in the runtime, and we need to have Superman snap out of it so we can go fight a computer. And I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> what I really like about Reeves' performance is he does not snap to evil. It's not just the rock gets put in front of him and he's suddenly evil Snoop Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I like that there's some nuance to it. I think the way he plays it is completely underrated because I think Reeves does a super job of playing both sides here. Even just his realization that, oh my God, I didn't go in time. And I think there's something to be said, and the movie downplays it, but Superman literally shows up like five seconds late, and that truck went over the bridge and everybody died. And like, now but, but that no would time, be... No time for that, Dr. Jones. We have to come back to guns. <laughs> that would be, Matt said, the entire movie. You could play this so much more and it would work. Because Reeve, as much as he didn't like the rest of this movie... This part that he does is great. And for a lot of it, even his, the way his face looks, I swear his twin brother is who's playing this different character of Superman. Because just the way he holds his face, he looks like a different character. Though I'll say, the Tower of Pisa is one of four things I remembered about this movie, and it still makes me laugh. <laughs> and Chris Reeve is doing more to illustrate the complexities of his performance than the wardrobe department is because, all right, we have to literally show how he's different. So we're going to dye his suit darker and Chris, grow some five o'clock shadow to show that you're evil. That's the tar, Matt. That's what I took it as. <laughs> oh, Zack Snyder loves the color of this dark Superman You're not kidding. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and oh, you talked about him snapping out of it. I mean, he'll do that in a couple months when we talk about Man of Steel. But... Now, boys, 
you've obviously read the comics more than I have. I've read some Superman comics. Superman was a big thing, like I said, a couple podcasts ago, and I did dive into him a bit. Do you guys believe that this is pretty much how the McSixoplick and Brainiac storyline would have gone, was him pretty much doing this kind of stuff? No, because I got them, this was their attempt to try Bizarro. Okay the opposite of Superman in a lot of ways. You know, Mixus Pidlick does a lot of, like, reality manipulation and stuff. So I guess you could have him maybe pull something out of Superman that was always there. But I don't think this was something that I would attribute as a holdover from that previous script. And I kind of wish they did the whole, like, split off that we get in the junkyard. Just do that literally, where the kryptonite creates evil Superman as, like, a separate entity mm-hmm. that he has to go fight. Like, actually do bizarro we then see superman as you guys said straighten out the tower of pisa and then we cut to vera reading an article about how mean superman has become and russ puts together that the kryptonite they gave him is what changed him and now they can get to work on the oil scheme that he had in mind today the coffee tomorrow the oil is an actual line (laughs) that is said in this movie i did laugh because i was like this is beneath even the adam west show these movies two or three it is very much like what people perceive Batman and Robin to be. I feel about this movie the way you guys felt about both Schumacher movies, where I just thought it was a step too far Mm. in every little direction. Superman himself isn't done being the asshole, though, as he puts out the Olympic flame before the torch can be lit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this made me laugh, but my problem is that this implication of Superman being quote-unquote evil, it's all done... Not as this deep deconstruction of him doing these really heinous things. He's just a juvenile delinquent, and as a result, you can't take it seriously despite the fact that later on the movie wants you. Matt, don't forget, we're catering to kids here. This is a movie made for kids. You can't have him do something completely evil. No, but you should also, if you want to have this have any semblance of weight, he should do something a little bit more destructive. I'm not saying murder people. I mean, granted, certain versions of Superman do that without being exposed to evil. Yeah. But something that really makes him go, oh, God, I have done something reprehensible or something that makes the public really turn on him. That bus thing or the truck that happened earlier, something like that on a bigger scale, I think would have been far more effective than these scenes of him blowing out the Olympic doors. He might as well be spray-painting graffiti on walls. (laughs) That is the level of just delinquency he is doing in these scenes. To this day, I always think about this scene when I see highlights of an Olympic torch being lit. It just makes me laugh every time. I do, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, SpongeBob stole this as a joke in there's a Fry Cook Games episode where the guy says, I hereby declare these games open, and a gust of wind comes and knocks out the torch. That's great. The only thing I'm opposed to is I want to see a little more of it. The only thing we get before the news that Superman is quote-unquote evil is the bus and the, and the Tower of Pisa, and then other stuff happens. So I'd actually wish we got a little more, not of him doing bad things, but in a little bit, we get him, and it really shows that just his empathy for what he believes humanity to be is kind of gone. And I would like to see a little of that, of him just deciding, screw you guys, of him just deciding he's not going to interfere anymore. It goes by too quick, because God knows we can't spend time with him, but I just wish we had a little more of this stuff. Because other than the five o'clock shadow, I just can't believe how much he looks like a different person. Mm-hmm. This Superman isn't Chris Reeve's Superman, and it blows me away. I didn't think that it was going to be that much of a performance. But I do think Reeve really puts an effort into making this character seem different. Though, guess what, people? There are no Olympics in odd years. And if this is <laughs> 1985, we're a year behind the Olympics. 83. 
83. Okay, though it's still an yeah, odd year. Yeah, it is an odd year. You're right. Every four <laughs> years, not every two years that we pussify it to be. We see Gus come in wearing a snazzy suit, by the way, as Russ tells him of a plan to program the oil pumps to stop pumping and then to send the tankers to the middle of the ocean and just sit there. Pryor is trying to convey that he's having second and third thoughts about being the guy who causes all this, but I wish they could have written that part of the story a bit better instead of just putting out some cigarette wrappers and receipts on the table asking for the ultimate computer to be built. We're not really wrestling with what Gus is wrestling with inside, are we, Matt? No, and as I said earlier, he quote-unquote does the right thing. And rather than going off to jail like he should, he gets off scot-free at the end. So I don't think anything with this character works, and this supercomputer thing should have been established a lot earlier, or just not done it at all, because this is the component that I think dates the movie the most. Oh, yeah. This puts it in the war games category, of where it's almost impossible to do anything other than laugh at what they execute at the time they thought was groundbreaking. But we might as well have done this in tandem with the lawnmower man. It's so dated. Yeah, Gus needs more urgency other than... Uh, it makes no sense that a guy who only a couple weeks ago learned how, maybe a few months, learned how to become a computer programmer has got his designs for a supercomputer, which his way of designs of it is, here's how I want it to look, and I guess we're going to figure it out from there. Yeah. <laughs> and if he maybe would have said, you know, here's the file I have on you, you need to help me build this, just something like that. But Gus is as underwritten as the rest of this film is. Gus programs the tankers and oil pumps, like he's told. And this is playing off something that, even by the time this movie had come out, was far in the rear view, and that's the oil crisis of a few years before. Yeah, this would have mattered in Superman, the exactly. motion picture. Russ sees one tanker refusing to go where it's told to, so he sends Lorelei onto the Statue of Liberty in order to seduce Superman to get rid of it. He does, and in turn he gets laid, and we are officially in the midst of a Superman is an asshole who would do anything to get laid plot. <laughs> How did she get up on that, the Statue yeah. of Liberty? That's my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and how is it that this looks better than the climax of X-Men, which was almost 20 years later? <laughs> this is basically the a lot of vagina scene in Austin Powers. The ski lodge for seduction. Yeah, I, I, I love that this is freaking uh, Billy Connolly's wife. Yeah, It's so many Bond women. I'm going to get James by sleeping with him to get what I want. This tanker scene, this was something I always used to reenact when I was a kid. Much to my parents' chagrin, I'd take our couch pillows, set them up like they were on a tanker, and just punch them like Superman punches this boat. Yes. <laughs> yes. The fact that Superman 3 was such a formative movie for oh. you puts so much of our relationship into context. <laughs> <laughs> I do like how we're already getting glimpses that Superman himself is kind of having an identity crisis. He sometimes twitches his face as if he's struggling inside. And again, I'm going to credit Reeve with that. Yeah, I like that there's times you see the split in his actual performance and it's all written on his mm -hmm. face. We're seeing cars only being given two gallons per fill at the gas stations and fights ensue over it, as Matt mentioned earlier. And we're seeing Gus still struggling with what he's caused. We then see helicopters bringing in Gus's supercomputer and contractors not really knowing what they're building here. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, here, put it over there. Hell, I don't give a shit. Just put it anywhere. Hey, the screenwriters are apparently at work with this computer. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lana's on the phone with Brad, and she realizes that she has nothing else in Smallville, so it's time to leave. We then cut to a bar as Superman's getting drunk and flicking peanuts into bottles while causing the glass in front of him to melt. So two things. Number one, this was me watching the movie. 
be perfectly honest. And B, if you notice, he's drinking Johnny Walker Red, which yep. is the cheapest of Johnny Walkers. It's for men who can get anything he wants, chooses to buy the cheap liquor, which just made me laugh ridiculously hard. And just the image of Superman doing shots. I'm so glad this is a meme 40 plus years it later. Is. And I think for Garrett, this was him watching Batman v Superman 2. <laughs> Which I'm going to have to do again. As a Superman fan, he's like, oh, yeah. take a shot every time Superman shows up. Yeah. You only have about two. This is such an iconic scene. Like, I remember this being going on a little bit, but it's really short here in the bar. There was a nuance that I'd never, ever have noticed before, but it's how I decided to take it this time. That after he's flicking the peanuts and he's breaking the bottles, but he looks in the mirror, sees himself, and then melts himself. There's a part of him that knows what he's seeing is wrong, and he's destroyed that visage of himself looking like he does. And I think there's something there if you decide to see it. That's a great point that I've actually never noticed that in many times I've seen this movie. And I took the Johnny Walker Red as being a callback to Red Kryptonite. Red Kryptonite nod? Yeah, but somebody would actually have had to have read a comic book and known what Red Kryptonite was to put it in there. Jeff Loeb doesn't show up till Smallville Season 2. Ricky sees Superman leaving and yells that he can be great again. And as Superman flies off, we're seeing that Ricky's words are really having an effect on him. So is Ricky the actual hero of the movie? I'm laughing because I just had a thought. Make Superman great again would have made total sense if Frost Lester was actually Donald Trump. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Superman flies into a junkyard and yells to the heavens before Clark emerges from him. So here we have the two personalities we have been following for three films, fighting it out. And I know I said that the chemical fire was my favorite part of this movie, but to me, this is the scene of the film. And of course, it's all how Reeve plays it. We're having him play two people fighting here. And back then, you didn't have CGI, so you had to use camera tricks and clever stunt work to make this happen. And I just love how compelling this fight is, as Clark uses tires to trap him, but Superman is laughing at him as he pelts him with a fender, and Superman gets sent into acid and emerges, blowing it into Clark. I might be crazy, but this scene still works for me. What about you guys? Yeah, this is a fantastic scene, and it's one of the only times where I say logic be damned, because I don't understand how this happens. Yeah. But I like that it's internal conflict being portrayed externally. We're really emphasizing that Clark Kent is different from Superman in any capacity, which I think is very important to Superman as a character, is that of all the characters, superheroes, you know, your Batmans, your Spider-Mans, I think the biggest distinction between the two personas and dual identities is Superman and Clark Kent. You know, they stand for totally different things. They're two totally different people, and they're equally interesting. Nobody really cares about Bruce Wayne as much as Batman. And some people, I'd say the vast majority, prefer Peter Parker to Spider-Man. Whereas Clark Kent and Superman, I think it's a 50-50 split for a lot of people. And I like that they're actually emphasizing the importance of both and how they need to be in unison for them to be the symbol both for what Superman stands for and for Clark Kent also being the stand-up person that Superman's aspirational goal should represent for all of humanity. So I don't understand how this is happening. I would love to hear the director try to explain it, but it's shot well. It's unfortunate that it takes place in a junkyard, which is where this movie belongs, but this scene is deserving of better material. Man, I love seeing Brad Pitt and Edward Norton go at it here. This is, you know, we don't talk about Fight Club. Let's not forget Freddy Krueger's in the trunk of one of these cars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. This scene is, man, okay, is it silly? Does it make sense? Yes, and absolutely not. I freaking love it. It is the physical manifestation of what is going on inside his head. And I think when you look at it that way, as a kid, you just see Clark Kent and Superman beating each other up. Hey, that's kind of cool. As an adult, when you look at it and you see that as a battle 
of a man within himself. Call it the dark wolf and the light wolf inside of everybody, the two halves of every soul, the two-face from Batman. There is something here that is powerful if you decide to think about it that way. And on top of that, I think the camera work and the filmmaking is pretty damn spectacular. For not having the CG the way you would do it nowadays, the camera work and the way that it makes it look like Chris Reeve is battling Chris Reeve is pretty damn awesome. The only thing I notice is at the very, very end of it, when he's choking out himself, you can just see where the seam is because the arms don't move. Other than that, this is pretty damn flawless. And going up into that car shredder still gives yeah. me chills like it did when I was a little kid, because that scared the shit mm-hmm. out of me when I was a child. You could write the thesis on this scene, and I think it would be really well done. I think that's how good this just part is. Sorry, now I'm starting to ramble. But every now and then you get a comic issue in the span of a run. You're like, wow, this one issue feels something special. You look at this entire movie, this scene, broken down, is a pretty damn special scene. I figured out why you guys like it so much. It doesn't have Gus in it. As Adam said, Superman puts Clark in a car shredder, and we're really hearing Clark scream in what seems like anguish. But he bursts through the compactor and grabs Superman around the throat, taking him out. And in the triumphant moment of the movie, we actually hear the Williams score as his shirt is ripped open, and we see the Superman suit, this time nice and clean. And I feel the movie has earned the right to play the theme at this point, as it never fails to give me chills. I love this moment. Agreed. I was mad it wasn't there at the beginning, but when you hold it for so long, it works when it finally shows up. It's like the Bill Conti theme for Rocky not showing up until the end. When you hold it, you get an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know that the actual Superman is back because this time, as he's flying, he doesn't have a sneer. He has a smile. He goes to undo what his bad counterpart did, which starts with putting the oil back in the tanker and sealing it back up. (laughs) And at this point, the sailors on this ship are just fucking confused. (laughs) (laughs) Superman then goes to Russ's house and they leave a message that if Superman is looking for them, the supercomputer is where he'll find them. We cut to Gus, not wanting to balloon down to the hideout, opting to use a donkey instead. Oh my god, these balloons. (laughs) Octopussy, anyone? (laughs) I thought of that too. Like, we're back to a little freaking Bond vehicle here. Oh god, I just can't stop thinking about the slapstickiest of the Bond movies when it came to this. (laughs) They turn on the computer, and Lorelai says, Wow, what a jukebox! Now, when computers were being built around this time, there was an assumption that they really could do anything. That being said, I'm not sure I agree with producer Pierre Spangler, who on this movie's commentary says, Tell me there's a computer that can do anything not unlike this one they built for Gus, and I'll call you a liar. Sure, sir. (laughs) Superman's big obstacle at the end of the movie is a fucking computer. This computer caused nightmares, but we're getting there. So... They make their way upstairs and start firing missiles at Superman. Now, this video game-like interface that shows up while these missiles were being fired, they did indeed make a game like this, but I remember being so disappointed in its graphics as they weren't close to the ones Mm. used in this little section of the movie. And you guys both sighed, so I know you both have something to say. (laughs) I just, I I can't believe the way that, one, the compositing in this entire scene is pretty damn horrendous. Mm. Wow, it looks bad. But then that we're going to take this Atari 2600, the sounds. This movie can't take itself seriously, so it's not asking me to either. I don't know what the line is crossing over from misery to despair, but I think this was the moment that almost broke me. Maybe it was the booze, but... I had forgotten that they literally juxtapose in a shot from a video game, Mm -hmm. which 
again, fucking Batman Forever stole this part and parcel with them playing Battleship. <laughs> I liked it there. I can't explain why. It's too far. Oh, my God. It's just too far. Yeah, exactly. It's way it's way too far. Yeah. They don't even go this far in Batman 66, the movie. Superman does avoid a lot of these missiles, even kicking one that takes out a few more. Gus finally makes his way in and walks up as Superman recovers and comes in as well. As he approaches, Lorelai says hi to him, and Superman's like, um, I don't know you, lady. <laughs> Again, it's Reeves' performance that sells this, because as I look and listen to him, I firmly believe that this is a different person, not the one playing both roles. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is how Kylo Ren got into Jedi heaven, where he's like, uh, oh, I didn't murder all those people. Kylo Ren did. I've been so... That wasn't me anymore. <laughs> so he walks toward them, and Vera turns on an air bubble that I guess is their attempt to suffocate him. But Superman emerges out of that, and then Vera turns another button, which switches on the kryptonite. This time it takes him down, and I firmly believe with how Reeve is playing this that it is killing him. Gus lets his self-consciousness take over after Russ tells him that he's going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman. And after pulling the screw that works it and fighting off Ross... <laughs> The power switches back on and using other power resources that takes power away from pieces of the world, including the train that's carrying Lana and Ricky, Gus takes out the kryptonite with an axe. <sighs> Some screenwriter decided that the way that Gus was going to end the supercomputer was to unscrew a screw. <laughs> this screw? <laughs> Sw swallow that screw, and then the supercomputer would come back to life and start sucking energy on its own. Richard Pryor was not the only one dipping into Marlon Brando's <laughs> nose candy on the production of this film. Don't you, didn't you hear him? It wants to live. Wow. Yeah, and I guess this computer that knows every weakness conceivable didn't see the axe that they installed directly next to it. <laughs> the computer gets angry and sends Gus into the rocks, knocking him out as Superman recovers and leaves, much to Lorelai's chagrin. But the computer continues wanting to live, so much so that as the three criminals try to leave, it grabs Vera and... Okay. I've, I've written articles about this. I have probably spent more time writing about this movie than any movie on the planet. Honest to God, in the history of film, this is the movie I've written the most about. Mostly about this one scene. Now, for those who haven't read those articles, I'll tell the story again. Now, Adam, you remember my father. He was a loving, hardworking man, but he also had a very rich, dark sense of humor. On the videotape he made that contained this movie, he put on, right after it, Michael Jackson's Thriller. So between those two things, <laughs> this tape gave me so many fucking nightmares. Because not only did I have nightmares of Michael Jackson as a werewolf and a zombie, I had nightmares about Vera the Evil Robot Woman. With the way this metal covers her skin, and then her eyes change, I'm serious, guys. This was the scariest thing my young eyes had ever seen, and I couldn't sleep without a light on for at least a week after. Now, as an adult, I see the fright wig, the silly contacts, and I can realize it's not as scary as I remembered. But I tell you, those early frames, as a child, were straight fucking nightmare fuel. And the producers back me up on this. They say they got a lot of letters about this saying, yeah, this was a little too far. <laughs> Scare the ever-living crap out of me as a child and still puts a chill down my spine as an adult, not just because of this film, but because of how frightening this thing is. And it's amazing because it does not last long at all. And I remember Robo Vera being just a long-going, horrific scene. 
And it's short. It's really short. But, man, you want me to describe one thing I remember in this film? And it's this. It's this fucking nightmare fuel right here. I could definitely see how this would be nightmare fuel for people of a certain generation. As someone who's not been exposed to this at that time, I did see some of the makeup work and some of the seams. But I thought it was cool. It kind of woke me up from my drunken slumber. (laughs) Because I was like, oh, something interesting visually. It's not just a computer. Funny, she looks more like Cyborg Superman than anything else. <laughs> interesting. She really did. That's what I took this was at, that somebody at least knows Cyborg Superman. So Vera the evil robot takes both Ross and Lorelai out of the picture as Superman shows up with Chekhov's acid. <laughs> he fights with an out-of-control cleaning machine before taking the lid off the acid and letting it do its thing, which has apparently caused massive explosions and take out this entire computer. When it was sucking Superman into it, I think that's why the Vera scene works well, as I thought it was going to make him into the exact same oh, type of nice. creature. That's a good call. So, yeah. After all the explosions, we see that Lorelai, she falls, but she's not dead, is she? I don't think she is. Nah. Vera, she's out of her robot makeup, and she's okay, though we never see Ross. Superman emerges and sees a hand peering out of the rocks. So he moves the rocks out of the way, grabs Gus, who out of appreciation says, Thank you, brother. So Gus goes from being the semi-villain to, um, wow. I can see why Reeve really rebelled against the script, honestly. You know what's amazing is the trailer for this film shows this moment. And it's like the man you thought was your villain ends up saving you in the end. And it shows him shaking hands with him out of the rock. So they fly while avoiding trees, and Superman tells them that the machine just died of acid indigestion. Uh (laughs) Matt's having none of it. He lands and crushes a piece of coal, which turns into a diamond that he intends to give to Lana as a gift. After earlier in the movie, she expressed she had to pawn her ring. I dug the two reasons. One, it harkens back to an old Superman comic. But there was something I remember of me not understanding that as a kid and my dad explaining to me why the pressure and heat creates a diamond. Yeah. And that still, like, sticks in my head. So something about that, I'm like, that's a Superman move right there, to take a lump of coal and think it Yeah, my dad used to have to explain the same thing when I tried doing this to his barbecue briquettes. Um <laughs> But Superman is also a major fan of helping people get jobs, apparently, as he tells the... Even, especially people who try to yeah. get them. <laughs> As he tells the two workers, they could do worse than give Gus a job. Gus thanks Superman as he flies away and then promptly turns down the offer. As the camera lingers on him for what seems like an eternity, as he opens his own shirt and pretends to test the air before heading to the bus stop. This scene, Adam, you said the Vera scene was shorter than you remembered. This scene was way longer than I remembered. They linger on this forever. It, you got to think about it. If Gus thinks that that's how Superman shows himself, that means that he would know there's a man with a Superman costume underneath his clothes, which means Gus knows that Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> Fortunately for everybody, this is the last we ever see of Gus. We cut to Clark showing up to Lana's for dinner as he's a Superman replacement. He then gives her the diamond that we just saw him find just a few minutes before. Ricky then knocks over a bowl, and as Clark bends over to pick it up, here's Brad walking in. He tells Clark he never liked him, and like the rest of the last film, I guess we need to see Clark get his comeuppance on bullies he comes across. Right, Matt? This is what we saw at the end of the second film. Basically, yeah, where he gives someone their comeuppance in a physical sense, but it's also played far more cartoonish, where he lands on the food cart and it goes into the elevator. Mm. 
<sighs> I don't know, man. Throwing that guy on that pinball machine and having him bounce his head to the pinballs was pretty cartoonish, too. Yeah, but that was more violent. <laughs> <laughs> that would have caused long-term damage, most likely. This is just, gotcha. He, he does everything but throw a literal pie in his it's, face. We cut to the Daily Planet, where Lois shows back up, back from her trip to Bermuda. With the worst fake tan makeup. Holy shit. So Trump really should have this movie then. <laughs> Poor Marco Kidder, man. Uh, as Perry introduces Lana to Lois, and I love how Lana's like, yep, Clark gave me this sparkling ring. <laughs> She's just showing it off. <laughs> Clark then takes off as a new bingo machine shows up. We didn't see Superman repair the Tower of Pisa. Moving it back to its leaning position, <laughs> which pisses off the statue makers that they just made the new statues of the straight one. And apparently this stuff was supposedly planned for the second film, but they saved it for this one because we needed to get this into the script. Maybe you have to save their game <laughs> material for a couple All right, save it for five minutes here. We didn't see Superman fly past the sun and wave at who, as a kid, I thought was me as credits roll on Superman 3. Holy shit, this might be one of the most animated discussions we've ever had. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Superman 3? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. It's amazing how much like Superman himself, this movie is at war with itself, and not always in a good way. This thing feels like an 80s canon film, which, save it, (laughs) because this thing can't decide what it wants to be. There are some really good performances to be had. I think Annette O'Toole is fantastic, bright, beautiful, and brings what I had thought that Margot Kidder brought to Lois. But it's also why, for those of you that know me from my comics page, I'll say, Lana Lang over Lois Lane any day of the week. Though it'd be nice if the writers could actually stop getting letters so close together. Poor Clark. Richard Pryor, I understand why you would want him in your movie. Because he's going to bring in an audience beyond what just putting Superman in a movie is going to. So I get the idea. However, early 80s Richard Pryor, you're going for a tone. And this movie can't decide what tone it wants to be. And I think that's its fault. Your villains are so cartoony slapstick that they are the, if not the worst, Bond villains. They are absolutely in the bottom 20%, and they play like a Bond villain Lex Luthor mashup. I mean, this is the most, I said it during our discussion, this is the most Lex Luthor plot in any Superman movie we're going to discuss, and it's not done by Lex Luthor. Absolutely blows my mind. With all the problems in this movie, Christopher Reeve comes to play, and I appreciate him for it because the scenes with him stand out and save those that they're in. But for a film that keeps tonally going back and forth so wildly off the rails, it's hard to say that I had a good time as an adult. I can still pick out, and I can understand why as a child, I really like this film, because it's slapsticky, goofy, funny more than anything else. But as a dissertation of the two halves of oneself, it misses where it could have been a great exploration of that idea. So, it ain't a bad Superman film, It ain't a good one, though, either, but we're about to get worse. We're about to get a whole lot worse, so I'm going to land on a six and a half. Could be a lot worse than what we got, but should have been a lot better. Wow, that's a higher score than I was expecting after this discussion. Six and a half from Mr. Bunch. All right, Matt, pull out your pistols. It's your turn. What's your uh, final breakdown of this film? My final breakdown occurred in my brain as the credits started to roll in this movie because this was... So much worse than I recall it being to the point 
where I question whether or not next week's movie is actually worse. That's going to be a very legitimate conversation we have next week based on where I stand presently. It could very well be like the Batman Forever versus Batman and Robin thing that Adam had, just with me in reverse. I understand all the components that went into making this movie, but I rebel against the Richard Pryor inclusion because Superman, the movie, was such a cultural touchstone that I don't think you needed to appeal to another demographic because it was such a phenomenon that everybody, you know, race, creed, color, everyone went to go see that. And it was part of pop culture consciousness. So having to do something else at the hindrance of your title character is something that I've never understood. And going in a more comedic tone eliminates a lot of the apparent struggle that I was supposed to feel with Superman. What's here is partially a taste thing. I don't find a lot of this to be funny. In fact, I find next to nothing humorous outside of the fact that people actually greenlit this movie and thought it was acceptable. But as a person who did like Superman 2, but agree that sometimes there were some missteps in tone and going too far, like throwing a cellophane ass, among other things, I'm very glad that I can say that Richard Donner is the reason why Superman 2 largely works, because I feel vindicated having seen a movie 100% directed by Richard Lester. (laughs) And this is not one of those things where I can put a lot of blame on the studio, because they said, do what you want, we trust you. So I think he should hold the weight of responsibility for how much I can't stand this movie. And like I said, I don't know if next week's movie is worse, because... I'm wielding dual pistols, Garrett, to answer your question, because this is a two-on-ten for me. And I honestly don't know if I'm going to see a worse Superman movie in this cycle, and if I do, I will be very surprised. That is a hell of a setup for next week. You know, I'm going to do something I don't do too often on this podcast, with good reason. I'm going to give some credit to one of my co-hosts here, Matthew Goudreau. Matt, you said in the very beginning that this was going to be the Batman Forever, Batman and Robin discussions turned on their head. And if you take those discussions from last year that the three of us did, and you turn it on its head, you spin it for a bit, you look at it, you will see that what I'm about to say is exactly pretty much what Goudreau said last year, in that this was the movie I grew up watching. This was the movie that, I'm not going to say introduced me to Superman, but it was the thing that I loved as a child and watched over and over. And as somebody who's been wanting so bad to review this movie in long form, I'm really at a standstill because I cannot, as a person who reviews movies on a podcast, I cannot legitimately look at this movie and say, it is a great movie. It isn't a great movie. It is not even very good. But I will say the Superman parts that work for me really work for me. And I'm going to raise this higher than a two because I think the chemical fire, I think a lot of the junkyard battle and some of what Reeve does here, I think this is very much worth watching just for Reeve's performance. You see a trans performance done by him here. He's going from being good to bad. Well, annoying, an asshole, to being good again, and I think that's done well. And yeah, the end is very farcical up until Fear of the Robot, which we discussed. I think there are reasons to say that this is not a very good Superman movie, but I gotta say, it's a good Superman movie, and as somebody who read those comics, I want to go about as high as Adam did, except my critic self is kind of lowering it a bit. I'll go 6 out of 10. I do think it is worth watching just for Reese's performance, but I'm in completely agreement with you guys. The criminals here, the villains here, worthless. A lot of what Pryor is doing in this, worthless. It's a different movie, but yet I think as a 
total film, it could have been way worse. I think their execution of Mr. Mixixoplick would have been even worse. What we get here, okay, it's not great, but eh, it's okay. All right, that does it for Superman 3. What a discussion, and again... Matt, you just laid all your cards on the table, sir. You said you expect next week's movie, Superman, The Quest for Peace, one of the most notoriously poorly reviewed films of all time, could possibly get a better review from you than this? Absolutely. I mean, look, Adam gave Batman and Robin a better score than Batman Forever, and that movie's as notorious as Superman 4, if not more so. So stranger things have happened. What are you expecting next week? You said you've watched next week's movie the most? More than three because I had only seen three once. I think I've seen Quest for Peace twice all the way through, and I'm more than prepared to eat my words. If it's worse, then I will come out here and say it, but I'll probably be dead of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> Adam, what about you, sir? This wasn't a movie we really discussed a lot growing up. Honestly, I don't even know your thoughts on this one. What, what are you expecting when we watch Superman Four: The Quest for Peace next week? You know, I remember almost nothing about the movie other than we get a future Lex Luthor in this film. I remember Nuclear Man's nails for some ungodly reason. <laughs> I remember more hairspray in this movie than a White Snake video, and that's about it. But when it came to those last two Schumacher Batman films, I was surprised what I could enjoy as opposed to being appalled by, and we'll see. Sometimes you just have to enjoy the cheese, but I remember this movie turning me off as a kid, just turning me off to Superman as a whole. So we'll see if that still holds. When's the last time you watched it? Decades. So it's been since you were a kid. Wow. Oh, God. Oh, it's easily been 25, 30 years. Oh, wow. Well, like the other three movies of this series, I also have a story that goes with the first time I watched this, and I'll save it for when we get to next week. But honestly, I haven't revisited this one too much over the years. This is one I've watched the least, as is probably possible with the majority of people. I am expecting the worst. Hopefully, low expectations will draw some, I don't want to say sympathy, but some better looks than uh, what I'm expecting. So yeah, that's what I'm expecting next week. Boys, what a lively discussion of Superman 3. I would like to thank you guys for joining me, especially Matt. Thank you for not dying of alcohol poisoning yet. We still have a whole series to finish. Please just leave us a positive review, and we have so many great things coming up, not of which I am going to disclose right now, but we have just tremendous tremendous plans and those plans are going to be executed and we can't wait for all of you to hear it so until next week when we discuss superman 4 the quest for peace you always wanted the podcast can't now is your chance thank you boys Once more, we survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the Earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. 
Join us next week for an entirely new review. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Mind over muscle. Edited by Garrett. Hey, that man's a miracle. Voiceovers by Adam. Ruler of Australia, activate the mission. Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Now, I have a very specific memory of this movie, and it involves one of the two other people in this podcast. Why is it he doesn't come out until I get on this radio, or I get on the air? He heard your voice, <laughs> Oh, my God. Here he comes. Our new addition to the house. Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> I have a very specific memory of this one. Especially when we decide that we're going to send a satellite later on, searching through thousands of years into the past. Whoo, Nelly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you still do you still, do you hey, do you still think Reeve is on his game here? Drags Brad to the computer and rigs it so that they can indeed be inserted at the same time. Man, between I am invincible. Go ahead, Adam. Wait, sorry, wrong movie. That was Goldeneye. Say that again because I missed it. I am invincible. <laughs> And I think in a movie that is fighting literally here in a little bit about the uh, the duality of somebody, duality of somebody, I can speak. It just plays into that theme a little bit more. Matt? Hmm? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, affer- affirmative. <laughs> God, this, this, this fucking podcast has so many bloopers. And I kind of wish they did the whole, like, split off that we get in the junkyard. Just do that literally, where the kryptonite 
creates evil Superman as like a separate entity mm-hmm. that he has to go fight, like actually do Bizarro. Which they did in Smallville. Yeah, and it sucks, like a lot of things on that show. Because all he did was he hit him with blue kryptonite and he exploded. I'm like, oh, God, that's so brilliant on CW filmmaking. Although, to be fair, outside of Lex Luthor, I don't think any of the big villains got justice. They were all given injustice on that show, because let's not forget, General Zod was played by a 25-year-old punk rocker. (laughs) That's true. Like a military brat. I'm like, this this show blows. (laughs) I mean, granted, that was like season eight Uh or nine when it was kind of unsaving. Like, Superman would have been like, all right, I'm going to snap this show's neck and be done with it. We get him, and it really shows that just his empathy for what he believes humanity to be is kind of gone. And I would like to see a little of that, of him just deciding, screw you guys. <laughs> screw you guys. Superman does avoid a lot of these missiles, even kicking one that takes out a few more. But he can't avoid this big one, which comes at him and explodes into him, rocketing him back into a rock at full speed. Freezing. <laughs> <laughs> that whole lie you just had is going to be taken out of context. I'm going to save that. I'll put it in a blooper. <laughs> Gus takes out the kryptonite with an axe. <sighs> so, so the screenwriter decided... That, I'll, I'll put it this way. The same screenwriter of... Um, Ah, fuck it. Um, shit. I'll start again. Sorry. Some screenwriter decided that the way that you were going to... The computer gets angry and sends Ross into the rocks, knocking him out. Oh, I'm sorry. Sends Gus into the rocks, knocking him out. Vera, she's out of her robot makeup, and she's okay, though we never see Ross. Superman, though, he emerges. He Don't know how... No, nothing. Okay. Yeah, my dad used to have to explain the same thing when I tried doing this to his barbecue briquettes. Um, (laughs) Matt? I I want this to be over. (laughs) Okay, I'll move on. I'll move on. (laughs) I guess I died of acid indigestion.